So I wouldn't say that was the end of the matter. Uh, After Garcia was removed from Dublin, granted, this was prior to his conviction and sentencing, the Bureau of Prisons placed an an acting warden to replace him. And that acting warden, Thomas Ray Hinkle, was actually found in a previous investigation conducted by the Associated Press to have an even longer and more storied history of abuse then Garcia, then his predecessor, and his name, Hinkle, he's since been placed in a higher position within the Bureau, so he's no longer the acting warden. However, he's the Bureau's deputy director for the Western region. So he helps oversee 20 federal institutions across a very broad region of the American West. And one of them, ironically, is still Dublin. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Great. So today we're meeting with Natalia Galitza, uh, Natalia is a South Florida um, native, and she's a journalist whose passion is narrative nonfiction writing. She graduated from the University of Florida with a bachelor's degree in journalism and specialization in magazine and feature writing. Today, we're going to focus on some work that she's done writing for the Deseret News, which is based in Utah. We're going to talk about uh, a fairly lengthy piece, um, which is entitled The Women That Me Too Left Behind, which is about abuse in the federal prisons for women in California. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi, Natalia. Good to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your career as a journalist? What kind of, what kind of stories have aroused your interest over the course of your career? Yeah, of course. So I am originally from South Florida, though I'm now based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and writing for Deseret Magazine. And I tend to enjoy on working on long-form stories that explore culture, history, recent event, or phenomenon through a more human-centered approach. I have had the privilege to write about a vast array of subject matter, but some of the stories that are my favorite or have felt the most rewarding to report on include this piece on abuse of incarcerated women in federal women's prisons, as well as another recent piece I wrote for the magazine about Haitian immigrants going to the Dominican Republic and several others that are tackled over the years for different publications. But anything that offers a chance to include some narrative elements of storytelling to allow readers a chance to visit a place or meet people they might not have otherwise and to shed light on something that's underreported that marks the sweet spot of what I find the most interesting and, and rewarding to write about. It sounds like you're quite interested in the story, telling the stories of marginalised people in terms of the stories that you singled out, out for us there. Can you tell us a bit about what piqued your interest in the Federal Cor- Correctional Institution Dublin? Yes, of course. After speaking with different sources who have experience working within or alongside different federal prisons or the federal prison system in the United States, including a former warden who served at three different prisons in the country, it became clear that sexual abuse is 
rather prevalent in the prison system, but when high-ranking officials like officers or as this story follows, the warden are the instigators of that abuse, it can risk going underreported. And the story was actually a pretty rare case where someone as powerful as a warden was both charged and convicted of abuse. So it speaks to an issue that's felt nationwide and even internationally, I'm sure. And I knew I wanted to cover the story once I learned about Ray Garcia, who was the former warden at the Federal Correctional Institution in Dublin, about his trial. It also marked a pretty pivotal trial because Garcia became the highest ranking federal prison official to be arrested in over a decade. So it was a pretty momentous moment when he was brought to the stand. And it's also important to mention that aside from Garcia, six correctional officers have been arrested on sex charges from that same prison. And some reports even suggest that prison, which is FCI Dublin in California, has among the most officers in the country to have been charged with sex crimes within a single institution. So it's definitely indicative of a larger problem while being quite a unique example of of national attention and, and justice being served. Certainly sounds like there's a cultural problem, doesn't it? If there's this number of officers coming to the attention of authorities, it looks like there's a culture that's facilitating the abuse of, of women in prison. Yes, unfortunately, it is, although it could be more documented, it is still pretty well documented that these instances are pretty prevalent within the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And again, after speaking to some people, particularly the former warden that I had interviewed in the story, it, it even further indicated that, uh, that this is definitely a cultural issue that has been going on for as long as the Bureau has been around, which is almost a century at this point. Thank you. And, and that particular prison opened in 1974, I believe, and was initially a mixed-sex prison, only becoming women-only in 2012. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Were there any problems with abuse before 2012? With, and, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so it had already faced lawsuits from former inmates accusing staff of abuse. I was able to find at least one such example from 1996 where a formerly incarcerated woman said correctional officers allowed incarcerated men to enter her cell at night and assault her. In her suit, she also recalls how prison officers attempted to coerce her into undressing in exchange for something as ridiculous as a prison-issued t-shirt. She was discouraged from furthering her report on the matter by being told that her allegations were dangerous, and she was also placed in solitary confinement. And two years after her lawsuit, she reached a settlement with the Bureau. It included a promise to reduce the risk to female prisoners of sexual assaults and harassment by correctional staff and male prisoners, and to, quote, provide prog appropriate programming, counseling, and services to female prisoners who are victims of such assault. But that promise was not legally binding. It was made in good faith, and it proved to be flimsy considering the course of events that took place decades later that are the subject of this story. So it's entirely possible that other such examples were numerous before 2012, but the only specific example I can cite is this one case from 1996, though I find that it speaks volumes. I was wondering as well, just in, in terms of thinking about the fact that being men in that prison, and that's awful to hear about 
the men being male prisoners being facilitated to to abuse women. Um, but I also wondered whether some of the male prisoners might also have been involved. I think uh, quite often in prisons were reluctant to think about um, homophobic assaults in prison. It seems that's a, a bit of a blind spot there when it comes to comes to stuff. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. Um, I personally don't have any data or examples to cite for this particular institution. Since my reporting was focused on abusive incarcerated women in the wake of Me Too, but I do pretend that it's entirely possible. Men are also victims of sexual abuse within the prison system. I do know that at least back in 2005, the Office of the Inspector General with the Department of Justice released a report that included a section that was dedicated to the fact that sexual abuse is not limited by gender. And it reported that about 8% of allegations from 2000 to 2004 were of sexual abuse by male guards toward male incarcerated folks. But then again, it only had a sample of about 350 allegations to investigate. And as was touched on in the story and tends to be true in most institutions, many cases likely go unreported, likely due to intimidation, a lack of consequence to the perpetrators, or even punishment for those who came forward, like that example from 1996, where the woman who reported her abuse was placed in solitary confinement. So that case can most certainly be true, both for men as well as women who are placed in those scenarios. Thank you. So Natalia, your story is centered around Melissa, who, who you describe as being an unsympathetic character. And she also seems to have been quite a vulnerable character. What, what exactly happened to Melissa? Mm -hmm. so Melissa was the first woman to testify against Garcia, and she was arrested for conspiracy to murder after finding herself involved in her brother's murder of two men. Both her brother and the men that he killed belonged to rival skinhead groups, and she testified that the racial nature of the crime that brought her to prison in the first place meant she had a lot of issues with staff making comments about her and making her feel unsafe, which is where Garcia stepped in to, as she said, take care of everything for her, which placed her, which made her both vulnerable to abuse by other correctional officers, but as well as the grooming by Garcia, since she seemed, for lack of a better word, a weak target. She had also testified that Garcia would ask about her son, help her apply for a furlough when her mother passed away so she could attend the service. He would make comments about escaping to a timeshare in Napa Valley in California when she was released and give her gifts like pieces of candy. And he eventually grew sexual and, and physical, and Melissa eventually described him as very pornographic, very vulgar. Um, he'd also testified that this is a quote. He told me that he likes convicts, and he told me that a convict is somebody in prison that keeps their mouth shut while turns their head to anything. And when she noticed that he had been treating other inmates the same way that he had been treating her, that's when she was inspired to come forward. So the nature of her crime placed her in kind of a vulnerable position, and it seemed as though the warden certainly took advantage of that after noticing, noticing where she stood. Thank you. It, it sounds like a pretty scary environment, particular 
here, prison. Is that how you experience it? Did you have you actually visited the prison? So I was not able to go visit the prison. Dublin largely did not respond to any requests for comments and had closed down the prison to lots of press at the time, just because of the nature of how profiled this case was and the fact that it was getting substantial attention. But I had been reporting this out once Garcia had already begun the trial process. So I was able to request court reporter transcripts and follow along and see how the proceedings went and and how the, the defendants testified. So that was a little bit of my process. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go visit in person. Thank you. So what happened to Garcia and the other staff then? Yes. For as far as the other staff go, many have been and are continuing to be charged, at least four, including the the prison chaplain who was mentioned in the story, have either pleaded or been found guilty and sentenced. Another former correctional officer that wasn't mentioned in the story, whose name's Daryl, with six counts of abusive sexual contact, one count of aggravated sexual abuse in late May, so just a couple months ago. So it is indicative of the fact that this process is still very much unfurling. But as far as Garcia, he was sentenced to 70 months in prison, and um, he is going to be serving his time rather soon. So he was not only charged, but found guilty and, and sentenced of, of all of the charges placed against him. So is he not in prison yet at this moment? As far as I know, I I don't believe so, just because these processes tend to drag their feet. But he was sentenced in late March, so he likely will be placed rather soon. And and do you think that was the end of the matter? What happened after he was taken away from being? So I wouldn't say that was the end of the matter. Uh, After Garcia was removed from Dublin, granted, this was prior to his conviction and sentencing, the Bureau of Prisons placed an an acting warden to replace him. And that acting warden, Thomas Ray Hinkle, was actually found in a previous investigation conducted by the Associated Press to have an even longer and more storied history of abuse than Garcia, than his predecessor. And his name, Hinkle, he's since been placed in a higher position within the Bureau, so he's no longer the acting warden. However, he's the Bureau's deputy director for the Western region. So he helps oversee 20 federal institutions across a very broad region of the American West. And one of them, ironically, is still Dublin. The current warden at Dublin who followed temporary duty is uh, Taisha Jacino. So there is a new person in charge of that particular institution. She is also a woman, which is a slight change, of course, from at least the past two people placed in that position and that's the current fate of Dublin though there are still many efforts by advocates and different different acts going through the Senate to heighten accountability and prevent such instances from being as widespread in other federal institutions but from what you're saying it it sounds as if this kind of grooming and abuse may be endemic throughout the uh, federal prison system. Would you think that's likely? 
I would definitely see it as possible, just given how widespread a lot of this abuse is, and especially how much of it goes unreported or unpunished. I feel like that speaks to a culture that is cultivated over decades of abuse of power within this infrastructure. And this story focused on this one particular prison, as well as the West, just being that's where most of our readers are based. But in reporting out the story, it was very clear that it's a nationwide issue and that at least two-thirds of the federal prisons in the Bureau of Prison System have been dealing with an influx of allegations and other such examples of abuse. So it's definitely a culture that has been cultivated over the course of the Bureau's history. Thank you, Natalia. When I've worked in male prison settings, I've never worked in a, a, an all-women setting, but I often usually thought that it was helpful to have some women staff, some female staff, working alongside male staff. I, I, I thought it somehow mitigated the uh, behaviour of or the ebullience of some of the uh, male staff. Do you think men, looking at it the other way around, do you think men should work in all female settings? It's definitely been argued either way. I know that a 1992 analysis through the Department of Justice found that female incarcerated people seemed to be better groomed, this was direct wording, and more obedient when male officers were present, uh, which is to say that incarcerated women at times preferred to have male guards and correctional officers within the mix, at least. However, the inmates did object to the deployment of men in assignments that required direct physical contact or visual observation. So it could be argued that there are certain barriers and certain areas where there could be a more clear delineation to prevent such abuses. And it's been argued over the course of, gee, I bet decades, but especially in the wake of Dublin, that some people find that male correctional officers or guards shouldn't be placed in women's prisons at all. Though I, I personally have a solid opinion one way or another, just because there's a lot of variance in what people tend to prefer when experiencing it firsthand, as well as what people argue based on precedent and past examples of abuse in, in, in this institution. I have to say, I'm not in favor of all female stuff environments, because I think that gives the message that actually men are dangerous and well, men are perpetrators and I think there's something about people learning to have relationships with people that maybe have a sex of abuse in the past and realise that it's possible to have safe relationships but I'm quite shocked to hear that there's an issue about I suppose physical touch because uh, certainly within the British prison system male staff wouldn't be patting down female prisoners I don't believe so I'm quite shocked to to hear a thing in American prisons. Um, and I was also shocked actually to hear that somebody who, even if he hasn't got convictions, has got such a checkered past to be given that amount of authority and power because it's so difficult to imagine how you would possibly speak up when you've got such little power as to be an incarcerated person in a system 
and then speak up about abuse within that system is it must take a lot of courage oh absolutely i as is the case for sexual abuse even outside of the prison system a lot of women or men who endure assault may fear retaliation or intimidation whether in a workplace or a personal setting with a significant other even but as you mentioned, in the prison systems, it's a whole different ballgame, especially when there is precedent of people holding such high positions of power who have essentially been able to get away with it. Certainly, symbolically, it communicates that, that safety isn't the priority, is it? If you could put somebody in a position like that, what message does that give to the people that find themselves inside prisons? Natalia, one aspect of this story is the abuse of power. We've just been touching on that. And of course, we see all kinds of settings. While you were talking, Naomi, I was thinking of Jimmy Savile and how he got away with what he got away with over so many years, with so many people having to know what he was doing. Do you have any thoughts at all on how such exploitation might be counted in, in, in these systems, Natalia? Yeah, I do feel as though more research and transparency could be helpful in shedding even more light on this issue and making what's ordinarily hidden public knowledge. This was a very rare case where it coincided with a bipartisan Senate investigation that targeted the federal prisons all across the country to see how many allegations were going uninvestigated, how many allegations there were in the first place. So it was a perfect storm of accountability for the people within this particular prison, as well as a brief moment of hope where there was a large-scale political effort to shed light on what happens nationwide within the institution as a whole. But I do feel like there ought to be more of that research, more of that data collecting. And advocates argue that it should be from independent investigators as well, just for the sake of fairness and in preventing any sort of smudging or hiding under the rug. There are lots of different demands and measures that are proposed by survivors as well as advocates and even some courses of action that are entering the political arena, but to positively affect the culture within the Bureau of Prisons, which has, again, been around for about a century, it's likely that this work will be ongoing. That one simple action or measure will definitely not offset decades of history, especially considering the power structure in place. I will also say that advocates for the survivors of this particular institution have pushed for compassionate release of incarcerated people who have endured abuse and come forward. The Bureau rejected that move since compassionate release in the United States is typically reserved for incarcerated people who have deteriorating health. And even then, it's not guaranteed. But that's one method that people are continuing to push for that could possibly be replicated at other institutions. And as far as changes within the prison, there are small changes that have been for years, like the installation of new security cameras. At November, it's still ongoing in Dublin, which means there's no tangible reported action to know whether or not anything is set in motion to get these new surveillance cameras installed. But that is one tiny measure, seemingly tiny measure, 
that has been advocated for years and that could make a difference in at least holding more people accountable when such abuse occurs. Advocates also call for better hiring procedures, independent investigators, like I mentioned, to oversee these reports of abuse. Some call for female guards overseeing female prison populations, among other demands. So there's a very broad range of need and demand that has come out of the wake of this particular case. It'll be interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't. There are also some bipartisan bills like the Federal Prisons Accountability Act and the Federal Prison Oversight Act that have both been introduced in the House and Senate. They stand to offer checks and balances in the hiring process, which has been demanded by advocate for the director of the bureau, as well as regular inspections of all bureau facilities and the appointment of an ombudsman to follow through on investigations into incarcerated individuals' well-being. So these are also two examples of way, ways that large-scale changes could be made within the Bureau at large. And all of these plans have been presented. They have yet to gain traction. But these are just a few more efforts that have come out in the wake of what occurred at FCI Dublin and what could be a foreshadowing of more large-scale action that might be t- taking place within the United States. Thank you. That's really helpful because we know how difficult it is changing the culture in open and apparently transparent organizations. And it's even harder within these closed institutions. Absolutely. Finally, Natalia, when you've been so deeply involved in these kind of stories, which really come associated with an awful lot of sadness and despair, really, I think sometimes when you hear about some of these kind of events. How do you look after yourself and your own mental well-being? Yeah, that is a great question. I find that I tend to lean heavily on the people that I work directly with in my team. So my editor, throughout the process of reporting and piecing together the story, talking through what I found and just rehashing has been very helpful for me. And it's also a tactic that I've used for past stories that have been equally weighty and hefty. There really is something to be said about just the power of social connection. Something as simple as talking through with somebody that you know and trust can really make a world of difference. I also am fortunate enough to have cultivated a community of other journalists and and mentors who have endured similarly or, or even more traumatic reporting experiences, knowing that there are people and resources to turn to if I should find that I need them. That has been a great source of comfort as well. I have one mentor who was a war correspondent who I often phone and reach out to when I find that I am stumbling across an obstacle or really just need to let something out that I've discovered. So really just cultivating any sort of connection and being able to talk through what you experience, I find has been the most helpful tool and definitely something that I have done with story after story and will likely continue to do in in the future. We just interviewed a former journalist by the name of Tamara Cherry, a Canadian journalist who's written a book about the beats, which is due out in the summer, but she was talking about that impact 
on myself of hearing these stories. And there was also a, an article in Britain which went viral by a journalist by the name of Judy Shah, who spoke about the the trauma of reporting these kind of stories. And it makes you wonder whether journalists would benefit from a formal space to be reflecting on their their work in a way that psychologists and mental health professionals have when they're hearing the same kind of stories, but from a different in a different role. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's especially in the US where there is a heightened and ever-increasing amount of burnout among journalists, particularly local journalists. It's definitely flinging to the forefront a conversation of what resources and communities we can and should cultivate to have spaces where people can rehash what they've gone through and have people to lean on. That's important for any sort of trauma and definitely helpful and important in this particular line of work as well. Thanks very much for coming on and sharing your story with us, Natalia. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I've really appreciated your time. Thanks a lot, so, Natalia, and uh, good luck with the rest of your career. Thank you so much.